Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we're giving you the tools to make a difference right now. Today, we talk about the future of Twitter, a treasure trove of January 6th text messages, and Trump fined $10,000 a day. We'll tell you why. And speaking of Trump, joining us for our interview is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, an expert on how fascism, authoritarian leaders, and propaganda have threatened democracies throughout history, including right now. All of that, plus our reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We We Win. Yeah, everything that we talk about in this podcast today is going to be under the same umbrella. And I think by the time people listen to the end of your interview, they're going to they're going to get it. It's it's all scarily related. Yeah. And um, what Ruth talks about, thankfully, uh, and she has an amazing book, too, about strongmen mm-hmm. that I, I we talk about, but I really recommend everyone read her book. Um, she talks about how they fall too. That's the, that's the most important thing. So we're not just going to talk about how they rise and their role throughout history. We have been witnessing that firsthand, um, but also how they fall. And there's some uh, stuff in the news that is uh, encouraging from that front too. Absolutely. The first thing is um, less encouraging. We'll start with the less encouraging news and move on from there. Mm. Um, it's it's a deal that's got a lot of question marks around it. I don't have that many followers anyway, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so listen, Twitter has agreed to sell itself to Elon Musk for $44 billion. He's promising to make all sorts of changes to the algorithm, which may benefit you, Steve, but also <laughs> I might to... finally get verified. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, that's one of the things that he's been tweeting about is the, how the process for getting verified. But, um, you know, there there's also going to be if if this deal goes through his version of what he feels is like removing barriers to free speech. And, you know, that raises the questions, what does free speech look like to Elon Musk? What about the quote unquote free speech content that might be frightening, abhorrent, offensive, um, you know, wrong, lies, misleading, bad for public health. Yeah, all of that. And then, of course, the big question that we've heard a lot of Twitter employees are already asking, is this going to lead to Donald Trump? getting his Twitter account back. What do you think? Well, I mean, uh, I I would think maybe yes, <clears throat> you yeah. know, uh, sadly. Um, and uh, of course, Trump said he's not going anywhere. He's on his, you know, flailing social media platform that he launched. You know, that thing is, uh, is not going anywhere. So he will, you know, if allowed the opportunity, I think would be back on Twitter. But, you know, the, the overarching thing about this that's really scary, and as you said, it falls right in line with uh, strongmen and oligarchs. Mm-hmm. Um, this is mm-hmm. the richest yeah. man in the world who now owns 
the most powerful media communication platform in the world that has really shaped how we talk about politics. I mean, we've talked about it so much. We've talked about how information, the way that we uh, consume information and consume the news has changed so much. And we've seen local newspapers go out of business. And, um, you know, people are, are having news curated for them based on algorithms that feed them mm-hmm. the same uh, the same stuff or th- stuff that they think is interested in. It's just gotten so bad and, and we've been working really hard to try to fight against it to make sure that the truth gets heard um, over the very, very loud minority of, of, you know, conspiracy theories that seems to dominate our discourse. Uh, this is going to make it harder, you know, because uh, Elon Musk uh, has has not been a friend to Twitter, has not uh, has been vocal about wanting to leave, you know, all all things on on the platform. So uh, it's it's hard hard to say where this is going to go. Um, it's hard not to be worried about it. Um, Oh, it feels so Sisyphean, this task. I use that word a lot, but, you know, we're just pushing this rock up this hill and then it rolls back down on us a little bit. And we just have to keep pushing because the truth needs to come out. And we can't let it get swallowed up by a um, by a petulant billionaire who can afford to just buy up a social media platform that he doesn't like and shape it in his own fashion. He's taking it private. It's not even going to be public. So he's right. going to have even more power to do what he wants. Yeah, um, I would say, you know, the whole Donald Trump of it all is he wouldn't have been president without social media. My opinion is without Twitter, he would he wouldn't have been president, Mm. Um, you know, but it's beyond even so much more than giving him yet another platform to to lie on. Um, It is, you know, I agree with Musk that the Twitter algorithm isn't great. But I have also seen some absolutely horrifying things on Twitter that make it through when they're and, and this is when, you know, Twitter has put into place sort of a, a human and artificial intelligence to try to prevent offensive things, for lack of a better word, for being on there. If that goes away, you know. I can't even imagine what what we're what we're going to be exposed to. I mean, it's already such a cesspool. <laughs> it's yeah. like, um, and there's been a lot of uh, employees of Twitter who are worried that all of the hard work they've been doing over recent years to make it more accountable and right. to uh, suppress some of those voices, to make it uh, a safer place, and and to remove the hate and the lies. That all that hard work is going to be uh, blown up. Um, by this one really, really, really wealthy individual. And it's it's just scary to think the, you know, we talk about it a lot. It reminds me of the conversations we've had with people like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse about the dark money's mm-hmm. influence on our politics. And, you know, it's, we have so much more in common with the, the right than we think we do because the problem isn't really a left-right issue. It's a top-bottom issue. There's this top percentage of billionaires and oligarchs that are really running everything. And um, thankfully, Democrats uh, are the team that is, uh, has the most political will to fight against that. But, you know, it's, it's scary. I, I, um, I, ha- I do have hope because the arc of history shows that we can push back against this. And, and um, I hope we will. But a lot of uncertainty right now. Lots of uncertainty, for sure. Um Speaking of Trump, we mentioned in the intro, he's being fined $10,000 
a day. Not quite even sure he has it, but tell us why. (laughs) Well, he can borrow it from some of his Russian oligarch friends. Exactly. Although they're kind of strapped right now too. So um, yeah, we'll see where he comes up with the dough. But yes, um, you know, we've of course all been following uh, our, you know, one of our heroes, Letitia James, Attorney General of New York, um, Mm -hmm. who has filed suit against Trump. He was. Uh, found in contempt of court for not turning over documents that were requested and is now being fined $10,000 a day until he does. So we'll see how long-lived that ruling is or, or are there developments that we need to know about? <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is all part of what, what you mentioned before is, you know, a focus on accountability. And thank goodness that there are people real lawyers, not Rudy Giuliani types, but mm. people who are um, really doing this work. Um, I feel like speak- Letitia James is unleashing the Kraken on Donald Trump uh, right now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> is it time to retire that phrase? <laughs> it probably is. I apologize. <laughs> oh, that's been a big, uh, that, that, that has actually shown up, I think, in some of the text messages that we're about to talk about. And that is it. (laughs) Well, that was my clever segue then. You you sound like Jenny Thomas. Um, So thank you. God, that's it. I'm canceling this now. We're done. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, But anyway, CNN has gotten access to 2,300 of Mark Meadows' text messages that were received or sent between Election Day 2020 and Inauguration Day 2021. He had turned the text messages over. They're not a complete set of his texts during that time, but they were the ones that he chose to turn over to the House committee that's investigating January 6th. Of course, Mark Meadows Mm -hmm. was Donald Trump's chief of staff at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, when Trump was offline, maybe using burner phones, that sort of thing, people were reaching out to Mark Meadows to try to get him to influence um, Donald Trump's reactions to January 6th. So um, these these text messages included um, messages from Trump's family, uh, his campaign and White House staff, advisors like Rudy Giuliani and my pillow CEO, Mike Lindell. And Mm. I include that because could you imagine like this must have been Mark Meadows' most challenging moments in his career. And like the mice pillow CEO guy is texting him with advice. You got it. Yeah. Or was he testic- texting him? Because maybe he's like, I can't get through to this guy. Maybe the my pillow guy can get through to this guy. I don't know. Maybe he was asking Mike Lindell for advice, but that's also a really difficult. <laughs> it's be, all bad. It's, it's all, all bad. Really terrible. Um, but of course, Fox News hosts were were also in the in the text chains, um, and then over forty GOP legislators like Ted Cruz, Jim mm-hmm. Jordan, mm-hmm. and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Again, oh. if Marjorie Taylor Greene is texting you. You're in a spot. Um, so people have been mocking these <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene texts because she, you know, misused the term martial law. I guess she thinks there's a guy named Marshall who could, you know, impose martial law. Um, <laughs> but I think what's most important about this is not the funny stuff. It's that in on January 6th, she starts off her text to Mark Meadows start off. She's very alarmed by what's going on. Um, So she's genuinely worried, which 
in the, you know, previously she said it wasn't that big of a deal. These were just tourists walking through the Capitol as, as they should be allowed to do. She was genuinely scared. Um, she quickly pivoted to, we think it's Antifa that's dressed up as MAGA in here. Right. Um, but she did start off nervous. And so I think that's important. Um, the texts also show that before the election had even been called in November, Trump allies like Rick Perry were messaging Mark Meadows with ideas for how to convince the public that the election was fraudulent. So results not even in and they're already scheming. This is uh, good and important stuff. Really important. And, um, you know, we could go down uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene wormhole really quickly because, of course, she just had her hearings um, in Georgia, too, which I did watch some of. And um, her incredible lack of memory for any of these events was just, you know, belligerent and stunning and not surprising, I guess. But, um, you know, this is coming to a head. We keep saying it's coming to a head, but it really is. um, Jamie Raskin uh, said that for the uh, public hearings that are going to come out, there is going to be some new and shocking information that will rock everybody's world uh, on this. And, um, you know, these releva- uh, revelations are are part of that, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. um, I I can't wait for that. I'm, I've already ordered extra tubs of popcorn <laughs> and uh, getting my spot on the Barca lounger all, all ready for those, those public hearings. Um. Those will be really telling the other telling thing that, that Do came people out. know what Barca loungers are anymore? Listeners, uh, hey, you could tweet to me and uh, and let me know if you got the Barca lounger reference. That's probably an old one. I don't know if I would, because with the way the algorithm is, you they will then only be shown tweets about Barca loungers <laughs> forever and ever. They will be so sick of it. Maybe Elon <laughs> Musk will either fix that or start building his own better Barker lounger to shoot up into space. I don't know. I digress. I was envisioning. But um, (laughs) the the other important thing, a new book coming out that parts of it were shared with the New York Times in the New York Times. um, Of course, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, after the the January 6th incident, had planned to tell Trump to resign. And uh, Mitch McConnell had thought, told allies that impeachment might be warranted. Obviously, they went back on that so quickly. Very quickly. It's so helpful to know what their instincts were on like January 6th and January 7th, and then to compare that to, you know, what they were saying weeks weeks later and, and up till this moment. Completely different. It's so cowardly, in so many ways worse, to know that they actually had instincts, that they you know, saw this is terrible for our country. This is terrible for our democracy. He has to stand down. He has to resign. Um, we need uh, we need to do this for the sake of the future of our country. And, uh, and that they had all of that knowledge and instinct and then just said, fuck it. Let's roll. Let's roll with the insurrectionists. Let's uh, let's just try to um, stay in power no matter what, no matter what the cost, no matter what the cost to our democracy. Um, And also, of course, as with all things, when uh, when this comes down, realizing that they are complicit and responsible for so much of this. So they have to Mm -hmm. double down and they have to try to uh, save their own asses, too. So it's it's just just stunningly, uh, frighteningly terrible. Yeah, um, 
time to get rid of all these people. I know we're all working on it. In the meantime, um, Steve, let's talk about your hero of the week. Thank you. Um, this is a tough one, and I'm taking a point of privilege here uh, on the podcast. Um, my hero of the week is my dad. Um, oh, it's going to be hard. <laughs> who uh, who passed away last week? Um, and uh, we did uh, an interview with him. Uh, on our show last year because he was former counsel to President Johnson. Um, he, uh, he helped implement um, the civil rights legislation that Johnson uh, signed into law and, and was around for a lot of big moments in history. Um, but uh, I want to read, I can, I'm just going to have to read something. I can't like pontificate about him. Yeah. Um, he was one of the, these people who would just walk into the room and, and shift the center of gravity. He was just a, a really humble and powerful presence and was a true leader. Um, and the main trait that drew people to him was his capacity for hope. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what I try to do on this show. Um, my dad really believed that as a society and as people that we could and we would do better. He really saw the best in everyone. And, um, you know, he, he just really believed in the capacity of all of us um, to be able to, in, in rough waters, to alter our course and steer mm-hmm. towards calmer shores. And as I said, he had lots of evidence to the contrary. He was on the front lines for some of the most devastating events in our history. And uh, incredibly well read. He read like every, like, I think he's read every book, like all the books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and as a lawyer and just this meticulous examiner of evidence, it would have been really easy for him to grow cynical and lose his faith. But, um, but he was a man of faith. He was a man of faith in God and in humanity. And mm-hmm. he always found the common threads that bind us together. He didn't, just treat people with respect. He had genuine respect for everyone he met, mm. um, even or even especially if they didn't share his views. Mm. Um, and uh, I know we're all taught to treat people with respect, but he just had this in, innate curiosity and respect for people. And that's my favorite quality uh, about my dad and, and why so many people gravitated towards him. It's why folks of all stripes, politics, and backgrounds sought his counsel. He had a very um, uh, distinguished and uh, uh, diverse legal career, including um, you know, being lead counsel in cases before the Supreme Court, being lead counsel in a case before the International Tribunal at The Hague. Um, he represented Elliot Abrams in the Iran-Contra um, hearings and scandal. Um, and, uh, and so people from all backgrounds and politics sought his counsel. He just had a tremendous capacity for understanding, forgiveness, love, and he chose it was a conscious choice that he made to live his life filled with optimism and hope. And we all know how hard it is to come by right now in this divided world and all the tragedy and uncertainty that, that we are walking through. Um, and, uh, you know, despair and apathy are everywhere. And 
as we know too well, common ground can be really hard to find. So for me, talking about my dad and our hero of the week, I ask all of you and encourage you listeners to embrace my dad's faith in humanity and his posture of hope. Uh, I can't think of a better way to honor his legacy and uh, or a better way to live my own life. And I'm I will always be grateful to my dad for that incredible gift that he gave me and so many others. So, W. Devere Pearson, you are our hero of the week. Steve, thank you so much. Um, I know that your dad lived an extraordinary life, and he has an extraordinarily extraordinary family um, that's remembering him right now. So... Thank you for that. Thank you. Now let's um, switch, <laughs> let's switch gears I, now to our to-do list. I, I don't think we can. <laughs> you know what? Our, our to-do, you know what? Our to-do list was, uh, was going to be this fundraising page, but you've already given us something to do. And that is to look at your dad's example and try to emulate it that, you know, hope and faith and, um, commitment. So that, so I, you've already given us our, our to-do list for the week, I think. Okay. I like that. You know, um, I, I said that he actually like had genuine respect for everyone he met. He met. I have a hard, um, that's aspirational for me, <laughs> to be honest. I try to treat people with respect, but it, it's, it's hard. Um, we're, we're so divided and there's so much hate right now that, um, is, is hard to, to give quarter to, and I, you know, I can't do it. But, um, but I'm going to try to look for the common threads with everybody that I meet, even people that I disagree with. Um, and I think that's what we need more of in our in our world and in our country and our society right now. So, thank you. Yes, that's a good to do list item. All right. So we're all going to aspire to that. Um, and uh, right now, though, we're going to listen to this interview that you did with. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, and then we'll be back with our reasons for hope. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a historian and commentator on fascism, authoritarian leaders, and propaganda, and the threats these present to democracies. You've probably seen her on MSNBC or read her op-eds in the Washington Post or the New Yorker. Her latest book, Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, was released in 2020, but reissued in 2021 with a new epilogue about January 6th. Ruth, thank you so much for taking the time to join join us. I'm glad to be here. So much to talk about, obviously, um, <laughs> and a lot of really hard stuff to talk about. But before we do, what sparked your interest in fascism and authoritarian leaders? Uh, kind of a, an improbable thing where I grew up in California in a very nice uh, seaside town between Malibu and Santa Monica and didn't have any family members, luckily, uh, who were affected by any kind of authoritarian regime. But where I grew up, Pacific Palisades had a lot of um, years ago, had a lot of exiles from Nazism, like famous people, like the writer Thomas Mann and composers, all kinds of people. And some of those people, their kids were around or their grandkids. 
And uh, my math teacher was the son of an exile. And so I started hearing about these, these stories. And I thought, you know, and here I'm like, you know, 15, 16 years old. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, gee, what is it about these, these dictatorships that force all these people to come halfway around the world and start over again? Mm-hmm. So that's how I got interested in it. And then, um, you know, I decided to work on Italy because not as much was done on Italy, but that's how the fascism interest got started. Yeah. Sadly, uh, so relevant right now. Um, I'm really glad to have you on our show. You uh, you cover a lot of strongmen in your latest book uh, from a wide range of backgrounds, uh, not just from Italy. Um, while I was reading it, I was really struck that at its core, it's a history book, but this is history that's playing out in devastating fashion right now. So um, yeah. uh, let's just start with what, what are the characteristics that these strong men, uh, including our current ones, Trump and Putin and others, uh, share? Yeah, and it, it, even though I'm a historian, I'd been doing you know a lot of uh, op-eds and it was really, the book was born from this fear that I was seeing, you know, these people revising history in ways that were kind of whitewashing their crimes. And at the same time, a whole new crop of these people, including in my own country, which I, you know, maybe we wouldn't have expected. So it's the first book to put Trump in historical perspective. And it was, in a way, me as an American citizen, first generation, trying to figure out, you know, what was happening to us. So I, I have this, uh, kind of idea there's this authoritarian playbook and and I look at how its main tools have changed over 100 years so it's propaganda corruption the myth of national greatness mm-hmm. violence and then uh, I have machismo or like you know masculinity and yeah. it's also the first book to say you know what masculinity it's easy to like laugh at the putin's stripping his shirt off but it's actually really important and so it, I, I put it up there along with propaganda and the other things it's it's very key so those are some of their like tools of rule that they use and it's amazing how much has not changed um, of course we have social media now and the way you do propaganda is different but a lot there's a lot of continuities in the things that they do maybe uh more powerful uh, tools that we have for propaganda now. Um, you uh, tweeted about Elon Musk's possible Twitter takeover <laughs> and, and the response to it. Uh, do you often see parallels to strongmen outside of the government as well? And 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 <laughs> while while we're at it, since you brought it up, like you know, how has Twitter and social media made our job of countering propaganda so much harder? It is a it is a lot harder because um, it, social media kind of soups up and accelerates a lot of the uh, fundamentals of propaganda because propaganda is is not only um, telling people lies and creating an alternate reality and what you really want to do the, the Nazis were really good at this you tell the same thing with small variations for different audiences and that is in fact what social media does naturally mm. that in the old days you were a you were a consumer of media you got your newspaper or you listened to the radio but we're also producers where we're circulating that propaganda maybe with a meme with a tiny variation to our own followers so 
so that that was very interesting to me how how it kind of ex- accelerates it and makes it much harder to to uh, to stop it uh, because all of us are potentially involved, right? Yeah. But there are also continuities, and this this I, I never. Uh, it, it's always amazing to me that personality cults. The rules of the personality cult haven't changed for a hundred years. Mm. You have to be the man of the people. So like you have crude humor and, you know, jokes and you're like very relatable and you establish a direct channel with people. So Trump, Trump has Twitter and Mussolini had newsreels. So you're at the every man, but you also have to be the Superman. Mm. You're the man above all other men, you know, who has all the women who can never get caught. You get away with everything. So that every man Superman thing uh, that the people who are successful have that going and that has not changed at all, despite the different kinds of media we have today. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And, you know, <laughs> a, a, a stark reminder that um, you don't see a lot of authoritarian leaders that are women. Um, this, uh, history mm-hmm. shows that guys were the absolute worst. Um but, uh, well, although I have a lot of uh, female perpetrators in the book, uh, just because I didn't want to write a book, it's about strong men, mm-hmm, yeah. and it's true that the, they've been male. I say at the end of the book that it's just a matter of time where we have, you know, a female one, and they're not going to be, you know, stripping their shirt off and be like machismo, but they'll be just as racist and corrupt. Um, well, we're seeing so, that in uh, in France right now. In France, yeah. yes, and and if you look at the states, look at all these rambunctious extremist women who are making a name for themselves. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the going to be part of the future, I think. That's interesting because if you look at like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, she is. Yeah doing the same kind of chest thumping, like, you know, yeah. uh, bravado, you know, same kind of rhetoric as as the uh, her counterparts. Um, uh, I, I, there's a lot to talk about. We have to talk about Ukraine right now um, because obviously the atrocities perpetrated by Putin are so devastating and I think you predicted, sadly, a lot of this, one of those things where you hate to be right before everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, So just from your perspective, where does Putin go from here? I mean, it seems clear to me Mm -hmm. that he's resolved on total genocide and annihilation. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know what else he's doing. I mean, we're seeing that play out in, you know, horrible footage. Is there any hope that he can be stopped? Where where do you see this going? Yeah, nowhere good. Yeah. Um, and you know when when the the he's in the book and when the paperback came out, I did a new epilogue and most mostly that was to include January sixth. Mm. But I also singled out Putin as somebody who was going to become more vulnerable because a lot of young people don't like Putin. There's new polls, almost 50% of people 18 to 24 years old in 2021 thought Russia was going in the wrong direction. So I think that, um, and, and it's like what, what, what I'm seeing, what we're all living through now, it's so weird for me because it's like uh, unrolling what I described in my book. And that is mm. when these guys think, they fear they've reached their peak. And I really think that Putin felt that 
in the, in the future, there would be decline. They do something that even has a name uh, that I use in the book called gambling for resurrection. If they think they're going to lose it in the future, they, they start thinking about their place in history. They get very paranoid, even more paranoid, more isolated. Someone's going to do them in. Mm-hmm. And they do some grand gesture like invading another country. That's gambling for resurrection is they're going to just go all out and save their reputation and become immortal. And I think that was partly what was, you know, sparking uh, Putin. And, and unfortunately, when they get in these kind of, I call it late autocrat states, mm. they become even more fanatic they miscalculate because they don't listen to any experts. So we, so lo and behold, Putin. We learned that Putin didn't game out this war with his experts. He didn't. He didn't consult his generals, and that's partly why they're doing so badly. But a logical. So that if you get in their heads, which is a horrible thing to do, I had to. I had to <laughs> sit for two years in their heads. It was awful. I'm so I had to do sorry. a lot of yoga. Thank you for doing doing what we uh, should not. <laughs> Yeah, but if you're in their heads, you realize that they they don't they can't turn back because that's they, it would mean political death for him. Yeah. So he has to go forward, digging in when other kinds of leaders would would negotiate, would try and save face. And his version of saving face is he's re, he's reduced the scope of his war, but he's become even more bent on genocide. Yeah. And that unfortunately, that fanaticism comes with that personality the more they feel threatened the more they become extreme um well i have the paper book version of your paperback version of your book right here and uh, and you talked about the january 6th uh insurrection so let's talk about that speaking of very recent history it was uh, just last year there was a violent insurrection on our capital just a reminder for our listeners um, it feels like we're actually reaching a critical point in the investigation, uh, and we've also mm-hmm. learned in recent weeks that the Justice Department's investigation has been ongoing and and pretty far-reaching. Um, what did you think as you watched the January 6th insurrection happen? This is a three-parter. I hate doing this to people, but I'm going to do it to you. What did you think <laughs> as you watched the January 6th insurrection happen? Uh, is there anything that's come out of the investigation that has particularly surprised or concerned you? And um, and do you think we will be able to hold everyone involved accountable? When I say everyone, I'm talking about Trump and and his peeps. But you know, do you think there will be accountability at the end of this? I'll start with the last one. Um, from for my newsletter, I recently interviewed Hugo Lowell who is the reporter for The Guardian, who is uh, covering January 6th. Mm-hmm. And he has had a lot of scoops. He was the one who broke the news, uh, the story about Mark Meadows handing over a PowerPoint that right. was like a recipe for a coup. Right. And and by the way, in uh, a third of my book is about coups, and I never thought it would be relevant to the United States. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and that was the part I learned, I knew less about when I started the research. So I learned a heck of a lot about coups. So what he feared, Hugo Lowell, was because I asked him, do you think we'll have justice? Do you think that the full truth will be known? And he said that he thinks that things come out but his worry and the worry of, he also said many people on Capitol Hill, is that they could find incriminating evidence and the Department of Justice might not move fast enough 
or might decide for whatever reason not to prosecute fully the real culprits. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, it's not clear uh, that it's not just what the the committee finds, it's also what the Department of Justice decides to do. And that's up in the air. Um, I I wasn't surprised. Just recently, just to follow up on that, you know, we had Liz Cheney coming out and saying that there was enough evidence to send um, criminal charges to the, or or criminal referral to the Justice Department. Uh, But there's been a lot of hand-wringing about whether that would put pressure. Personally, I think if you have the evidence, then you put it forward, you know, and don't worry about the and politics. And that's the lesson for, yeah, and that's the lesson with autocrats. If you don't prosecute, they come back even worse. I mean, Trump would do everything again. These people are unrepentant. Yeah. These are these are very dangerous. Bannon and Roger Stone and a lot of the GOP lawmakers, they're very dangerous people. Um, and more and more evidence is coming out all the time about uh, we just had yes, you know, recently the news of uh, new texts were uncovered, and you know, the saying we need ammo, uh, mm. we need false, you know, election results. These people are absolutely unscrup, you know, unscrupulous. Yeah, and I, I didn't know what form it would take, but unfortunately, I predicted in the book that Trump wouldn't leave office quietly, because this kind of leader. So you're asking me if I was surprised by anything these this kind of leader psychologically can't leave office Mm. uh once they get power and adulation and money and they they are able to make money off the presidency because they don't they have different goals they're not like democratic with a small d leaders so once they're in it's really hard to get rid of them as you see with trump's personality cult going strong and he hasn't been in office oh and he's gonna he's gonna run again if he can for sure yeah and they do they do they come back Berlusconi in Italy he was equally corrupt. He didn't do an insurrection, but he he was voted out in 2006, and his right hand man was convicted of mafia association. He had bribery, fraud. Every no idea how many scandals the guy had. He was back in 2008. He was voted back in, and it's very very hard to get rid of these people unless you prosecute. So you've got to prosecute. And so I'm really worried about that. Um, but nothing else really surprised me because um, Trump had been drawing from the entire menu of authoritarianism ever since he lost the election. You know, he tried to have a military coup. Um, he tried to get the military, you know, to have martial law. And that's where Michael Flynn comes in. And then mm-hmm. the military wouldn't play with him. They said, forget it. You know, the, the Mark Milley. That's why they hate Mark Milley. Thank God, yeah. Yeah, and then he tried to do the election fraud with the, you know, Georgia Secretary of State, and that didn't work. So he went for the violence option. So he actually used all these different tools over that have been part of authoritarianism, and violence is one. And uh, he wasn't successful, but what's so scary is that the GOP decided on January 6th itself, or January 7th, instead of you know, he was so toxic, they could have thrown him away and just discarded him. And instead they went all in. And so now those methods, including the violence, are their methods. And that's what's scary. So scary. And uh, 
it makes the midterms i say this a lot you know we're we're a show about organizing for elections but no hyperbole these uh, this is the most important election yeah. of our lives once again because uh if the republicans take control of uh the house and the senate um all of this accountability goes away and um and it's uh it's shuddering to think about what they would be capable of, too. The kinds of uh, of bullshit investigations they would open up uh, for, you know, mm-hmm. the so-called witch hunt and and propagating mm-hmm. these big lies and further propagating this propaganda. So, um, so I'm grateful for you and your book because a a, a huge part of it is uh, talking about how strong men fall. Too and mm-hmm. and the uh, resistance, or as we call it, the persistence. Now, um, so what does successful opposition to the authoritarians that you study look like? And most importantly, for our audience, how can we as citizens and activists help? Yeah, there's two things I mentioned. One, um, I was really struck by what happened in Chile in the 1980s, where. Uh, you know, there was this horrible military dictator, Pinochet. Mm-hmm. And then he was losing U.S. backing because he got in through a U.S. coup. And so he got, he lost enough influence. So he, ha- he had to submit to um, a vote, whether he was going to continue. And the opposition, everybody but the communists, banded together, including socialists, Christian Democrats, the entire opposition. They had this giant coalition. And they had years to prepare, but they registered to vote something like eight, nine million people because Pinochet had, you know, it was dictatorship and everybody was off the voting rolls. They had to reverse that. They did nonviolent mass protests. They did positive. Actually, they did a very interesting ad campaigns that were about reclaiming joy and positivity Mm. after so much you know, people were tortured, there was trauma, and and they did all of this, and they didn't win by very much, which is interesting. It was like, I think they won 53 to 47, something like that, mm. but they won. And and it was registering people to vote en masse, which really uh, helped, and having everybody uh, except the communists together. So, so that was very important. The other... Um, but there's another lesson that we just uh, learned from Hungary where there was, I was watching it closely because Viktor Orban was up for re-election. Mm-hmm. And again, everybody came together in a big coalition. But this time, they, instead of being a progressive coalition against this right-wing autocrat, this coalition decided to move right, to become like a center-right coalition in a way. And they included this far-right party called Jobbik that used to be Orban's ally. And they thought that they could be an alternative that wouldn't be too scary because it would be centrist. Hmm. Um, and they chose a conservative as their, um, other, their, their candidate. Totally backfired. And there's a lesson for us here mm. because all of the voters of this Yobik party, they couldn't stomach voting for a coalition that had progressives. So they all defected and they either voted for Orban's party or they voted for a neo-fascist party. They went even more right wing. Wow. So yeah. the lesson is if we want to, uh, we not only have to have a coalition, but you have to, you have to have a real progressive alternative. You can't move to the right 
or or too much to the center right to try and placate those independent voters or those other people. You have to be a strong democratic progressive alternative. Um, so that's I'm I'm looking at all these elections now, um, as, as well as these historical cases that are in my book, and thinking about what can we do here. Yeah, that's incredible and and really great practical like this is what we have mm -hmm. we preach on our show all the time is the importance of coalition building uh and uh, so often uh, as progressives we tend to organize in our silos and um and you yeah. know that that can be really uh that can can make it really hard to organize at scale, um, and especially the way that campaigns come into local communities sometimes, and they sort of fly in and try to take over, and then they fly out when they're done, and they don't uh, work with the local organizations that have been building the infrastructure on the ground. So that coalition building is so important. And you talked about voter registration, which is you know you yeah. you talked about um, in Chile people being purged from the voter rolls, which you know, we we see happened uh, in, in Texas I, right now. One out of eight voters have have been uh, denied mm -hmm. their voter registration for some uh, some BS reason or the other, and, and they're being purged. So, um, so that's that's good. That's something that we can really really do. We can register voters. We can go out and make sure people know what the uh, the problems are with registering in states like Texas that are suppressing the vote mm -hmm. in Georgia. Um, and we can build coalitions with great community leaders like uh, the Stacey Abrams of the world who have built in, in their states. Exactly. Yeah. I also think we need democracy needs heroes. And I've been I've been I do a lot of interviews and I've been telling journalists for like three years that it would be really nice if, you know, I'm, I myself focus on villains, mm. but I also have a chapter on resistance and how they fall and. I hold up these heroes uh, of, of the past and the present. And we see through Zelensky has, has inspired so many people. Yes. But we, we need, I wish the media would profile people who, um, you know, and, and not just on certain occasions like Stacey Abrams, who, who justifiably merited every profile she got mm -hmm. in, into the future. But the people who have changed, because so many people when Trump came on, they, they changed their lives. They left their jobs. They worked for nonprofits. There's a whole like beehive of activity in the States. And it, there are all these heroes and we don't hear about them. And I think yeah. people need, need to do that for inspiration and to get themselves, you know, motivated to, to be, perhaps become more active. You're speaking my language. I could not agree more. That's that's the crux of what we try to do here. But the media doesn't do it. They, you know, um, I mean, they, no. the mainstream media, sadly, is is a huge part of the problem with this because they they want ratings, they want sensationalism, and uh, and the scary stuff, the uh, the really awful stuff, is what uh, they end up putting on. They don't put enough. Uh, inspirational leaders. Uh, I digress now. This is your interview, but it, it just reminded me of a, a protest, peaceful protest that we uh, went to for one of the first, um, the first impeachment uh, <laughs> of, of Donald Trump. You know, he was impeached twice, but this was the first one and uh, it was in front of City Hall and there was great speakers there, a really great turnout, thousands of people in front of the Los Angeles City Hall. And there was one guy with a bullhorn from InfoWars 
who was making noise during the speeches. And I looked, and every single camera, every media person's camera was pointed at this one guy. You know, See, they that's, were, yeah. That's it. That they, so we often say, oh, well, the right is more effective at doing this, but it's also the media that chooses to focus on them. And there are reasons to focus on them, for, for sure, but not at the exclusion of the other things, because it gives a skewed picture, and then it causes people to get fatalistic, like there's nothing they can do. Um, it's a big, it's a huge problem. I, I've tried my best to to try and educate journalists. I don't mean that condescend, condescendingly, mm -hmm. but that these are the things that you need to do just to even be equal in your coverage, but it hasn't translated into much. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're doing that. I mean, the, the repercussions of that kind of journalism are stark. Like you said, it makes people feel apathetic, like there's nothing they can do. And that is ultimately the goal of all of this propaganda, right? I mean, yeah. you, you want people to maybe believe lies, but, but most importantly, you want them to question all the truth and, and not, not know what to believe and, and feel like they, they don't have a stake and there's nothing they can do. So um, Exactly. So having said that, um, <laughs> uh, we want to finish this interview with the question that we ask all of our guests. And uh, it is definitely a dark and scary time. You're a student of history and find yourself as a, now a prognosticator of the future as well. Um, but uh, what gives you the most hope for the future right now? I, I feel uh, hopeful in... Um I actually think a lot about how we did something that hardly anybody's done in voting Trump out, mm. um, that we interrupted this process of like autocratic capture of the state. Mm. We got rid of all of these very dangerous people. And um, I'm also hopeful that the combination of the pandemic and Putin's war on Ukraine, that's that's very uh, the response, uh, even in you know corporate America and all of the sanctions that are worldwide. How people have come together uh, against Putin—that's very hopeful, and it's unexpected. Yeah, um, and it has sensitized people, I think, in a new way to the stakes of autocracy. So, I do think that these these guys who are now in power—they're not getting any younger, and they're grasping like the Trumps and the Putins, they're grasping at, at power. And there are lots of younger far-rightists and autocrats waiting in the wings, but there's also this incredible energy for something different. Um, and I think that um, if we're smart about it, we can bring that to fruition. I love that. Um... I encourage everyone to get a hold of Ruth's book. It is is so important and so great. Strong Men, How They Rise, Why They Succeed, How They Fall. That's my favorite part of the title. Um, mm -hmm. Also, you have a really excellent newsletter. You just celebrated a year uh, with your Lucid newsletter. So I recommend everyone subscribe to that and, uh, and check that out. Uh, Ruth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It was really a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure. Thanks. We are back now with uh, this week's Reasons for Hope. Should I start or do you want to go? 
I will start. So something that people may have been reading about recently is um, a woman named Melissa Lucio here in Texas Mm -hmm. who was convicted of killing her her toddler and um, was sentenced to death. And there's been new evidence and expert testimony that have made a lot of people think that she is perhaps not guilty of this crime, but Texas was still um, prepared to move forward with her execution. Um, It was halted this week um, while they look into more evidence. And this is a horrible story. Um, This is very complicated but the fact, and, and Texas is a, a place that some states are, are known for not having any qualms about the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they're, they're willing to pause this gives me a lot of hope in a sad case that, you know, there is no, there is no justice in any of these cases, but when, when a child dies, I mean, yeah. but um, if an innocent person is not executed, that is justice, not just for that person and, and their family, but for our society a, as well. Um, I have a lot of problems with the death penalty. I, Me I don't, too. Um, so anytime that people are willing to re-examine it is incredibly important. Um, and so that is that is giving me a, a little bit of a reason for hope. Um, what about you, Steve? Yeah, What's thank your... you for sharing that story, first of all, because I saw that too, and it, and it gave me a lot of hope. I am a very anti-death penalty. So yes, uh, thank you for, re- for sharing that story. That gives me a lot of hope. My reason for hope came uh, from, um, from Harvard, from Harvard University. Like, oh, sure, he went to Harvard. Um, but if you really went there, you just refer to it as a school in Cambridge. <laughs> a school in Cambridge. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, but uh, there's an article in New York Times, uh, Harvard creates fund to redress its ties to slavery. The mm. university is committing $100 million, joining wow. other universities that are grappling with their complicity in the institution of slavery. With that money, they will create an endowed legacy of slavery fund, which will continue researching and memorializing that history, working with descendants of black and Native American people enslaved at Harvard, as well as their broader communities. Um, They join many other universities, as I said, including Brown, Georgetown, and Princeton Theological uh, Seminary that are not just grappling with their complicity in the institution of slavery, but also putting financial resources behind efforts to make amends. This really jumped out at me. And, uh, you know, it's it's like the tip of the iceberg, of course, but at a time when we are seeing story after story and actual legislation being passed to restrict the teachings of the true history of our country, to restrict mm-hmm. discussions on race, to... Uh, vilify and use culture wars to talk about critical race theory which you know isn't a thing and and unless you're studying it in law school um you know it was just nice to see some institutions actually putting a significant amount of money down on uh examining the role uh that they played their own role in the institution of uh how slavery and discrimination has been institutionalized in our country. So that gave me hope. 
It's a little bit of a pushback, I think, against uh, everything else that we're seeing. We need a lot more of a pushback because this is uh, um, this is fascism 101, and uh, we just heard about it with uh, Ruth, and uh, and we cannot mm-hmm. let it stand. Yeah, I, I want to say, as I'm recalling, Georgetown had a, a similar project where they identified um, the descendants of the slaves that helped build Georgetown and um, provided them with educational opportunities. Um, you know, we put so much emphasis in this country on founders, the founding fathers, the statues of the founders of these universities and the people that built the the buildings and libraries and why ignore the the founding laborers who were forced to 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 build these ins- and and ser- serve these institutions um yeah nothing wrong with that yeah. so uh thank you so much for for sharing um that is very hopeful And thank you all for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. You can send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com. That will definitely get through to us. Or you could tweet to us. We'll see at bluesboysteve and at mariah underscore craven. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. And share us with your friends. Help us build this community of informed and active volunteers and activists. This is how we win. We'll be back with some more next Wednesday. MSW.